Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn to the Epistle to the Hebrews. The Epistle to the Hebrews, and uh, we're going to start reading at chapter 10, verse 32, because I want to read the context of what we're talking about. If you pull the uh, outline from your bulletin there, uh, where you can take some notes, you'll see that we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 in verses 8, 9, and 10. But uh, to really get into this, we need to understand what the immediate context was. So as you turn there to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 32, I want to read down through chapter 11, verse 10 for us. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. But you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the, by the word of God, that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of, the, of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let's bow before the Lord of the Word in prayer this morning. Father, we just thank you for your word that we've read now from the book of Hebrews. We thank you for its message concerning faith, for the encouragement that we can draw from it, for the challenge to our lives that we can understand from it. And above all else, may we see Christ. 
May, may we understand him as the cornerstone of our faith, as the very foundation of the lives that we live. May we live to praise him and to serve him and to honor him even this morning in this message and as we worship together through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Didn't we have a wonderful song there at the last to sing about Jesus? One of the concluding lines was, Jesus, you are all to us. Do you think about what that means? Jesus, you are all to us. And make it more personal. Jesus, you are all to me. What does that entail? What does it involve? How does that look in our lives? You know, every one of us has heard from time to time the biblical challenge here to walk by faith and not by sight. And perhaps we've even been told that by a friend or a neighbor or someone else who says, you know what, I know you're going through a time of trial, but you just need to trust God. You need to walk by faith, not by sight. You need to just step out. You need to trust Him. Well, that's easily said, isn't it? It's advice that we hear readily, but it sometimes puzzles us how we make that look in our lives. What does it look like? to walk by faith, to live by faith. How do you do that? Why is it that we so often are depending on walking by sight, uh, making certain we see the path before we step out on it, afraid to go to the unknowable, afraid of tomorrow? You know, some of you coming here today have suffered this past week. You may come in here bruised. You may come in here feeling pain, anguish, fear, anxiety. You may have struggles at home. You may be in a marriage that you say, I'm about ready to give up. I just, I'm, I'm facing too many difficulties with my spouse. I, I, I don't know what to do. Or you may have a child that is a particular problem at this time. It's a challenge to you. And you say, I'm about to give up. I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't handle it anymore. I don't know what challenge you're facing. I don't know what it is that has caused you pain this week or causes you anxiety or fear. Some of you may just be in anxiety about the current political situation in our country and saying, what's it all coming to? It's like a revolution is taking place and, and uh, what, what's, what's happening? What's going to be tomorrow? Well, I wake up after the election and find out that 90% uh, of my income is going to be gone. Or am I going to wake up and find that my children are going to be sent off to war? Or am I going to wake up and find that we don't know? The unknown, the fear of the unknown, sometimes causes us to just sit in fear and timidity. But notice in the context here, as we look at the epistle to the Hebrews, and at the top of your outline there, there's an outline of the epistle to the Hebrews. It has four major sections to this book. In the first section of this book, and I've entitled the, the book of Hebrews and what it's all about as the superiority of Jesus Christ, because I believe that is the melodic line. That is the theme. That is what travels from chapter 1, verse 1, through the end in chapter 13, verse 25. That is the theme. It's about the superiority of Jesus Christ. Don't open this book. Don't read this book if you don't want to learn more about Jesus Christ. It's that first book perhaps we ought to read after reading the Gospels. 
because it's just focused on Him, on Him alone, His superiority. First of all, His superior position. He is the Son of God. He is above the angels. He's the creator of the universe. He created man. He is in the image of God. He has the glory of God. He is the one through whom God speaks to us. Jesus Christ's position is superior in the program of God. Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 13. And then at chapter 4, verse 14, the topic switches to his priesthood. And yes, his priesthood is superior as well. It's not the priesthood of Aaron and Levi. It's not even the priesthood of Melchizedek, although it's like the priesthood of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is the one who officiates at the altar of sacrifice for our sins, but he himself is also our sacrifice. Figure that one out. That's enough to strain the brain in trying to put your hands around that and understand it. He is everything. He's not only the high priest who enters in the holy place to intercede for us. He is the sacrifice crucified at Calvary for our sins. And he bled and died once for all that all sacrifices might be finished. And that we might have salvation in him. Forgiveness of sins. And then at chapter 8 verse 1 and going through chapter 10 verse 31. We see that the covenant, or I've used the word pact here just to have an alliteration. His covenant is superior. Why? Because it's the new covenant. It's greater than the old. And why is it so great? What is, what is there about this covenant that Jesus Christ makes that is superior to any covenant made in the Old Testament before? Because this one is sealed not by an animal sacrifice, but by his own sacrifice, his own blood being shed. And what does it result in? It results in the greatest gift we could ever receive, forgiveness of sins, changing the heart of stone to a heart of flesh, giving us new life in Christ, giving us hope of eternity and a citizenship in heaven, to be a child of God and a joint heir with Christ. This is what he accomplished for us. This is what makes his covenant superior. And fourthly in this book, we come then to the service for Jesus Christ is superior. Yes, our service for Jesus Christ is the highest calling we can have. It is the highest good. It is the greatest challenge. It is the highest adventure that we could ever enter into is serving Jesus Christ. So the last part of this book from chapter 10, verse 32 through the end of the book is about our service. And how does the writer begin this under the instruction and superintendence of the Holy Spirit? He begins with the exhortation starting in chapter 10, verse 32, of not throwing our faith away. Now, wait a minute. We just asked the question, what does it look like to walk by faith, live by faith? You mean it can be thrown away? Why does he say, don't throw your faith away? You wonder today, perhaps, that with all you're going through, that perhaps you've thrown away your faith already? Or you're on the verge of throwing away your faith because you say, I just don't see any result. I don't see any outcome. I don't see any path forward. 
I try to trust God. I try to live for Christ, but it just seems that things get worse. Christ doesn't put us on a luxury cruise ship for our lives and promises that there'll be no storms, no shipwrecks, no disease on shipboard, no mutinies, no terrorist attacks. On the ship of life he puts us on, he only promises that when you come home to me, I promise you it will be the harbor you want and long for forever. In this don't throw away your faith, we have three different commands issued here with regard to our faith. We're to remember the beginning of our faith and receive the conclusion of our faith. And the way we receive is, number one, don't throw it away, verse 35. Don't give it up, verses 36 to 38. You know, Brother Don Carson's sitting right down there on the aisle, just on my left over here. Wave, Don. You know him. You know that when you come to him and say, how are things going, Don? What does he say? I'm not hanging up. I'm hanging in, Right? That's Don Carson, wants to live by faith. I'm not going to give up. Listen, that's what we're to do here, according to the writer. We are not to give up. Don't hang up. Just because you're going through a time of trial, pain, sorrow, difficulty, challenge, disappointment, discouragement, loss, don't give up. Don't hang up. Hang on. Hang on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hang on to your faith. Don't throw it away. Don't give it up, and don't be timid. Notice in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are not to be timid. We're told in the previous verse, God has no pleasure in that soul that is timid in facing the challenges of living in a fallen world, the pains and the agonies. No, don't be timid. Don't be fearful. Cast your faith upon Him. Cast yourself upon Him because He cares for you. Trust Christ in these things. Now, when He says, don't throw away your faith, don't give up your faith, don't be timid in your faith, what in the world is faith? And the writer stops at that point and says, by the Holy Spirit's direction, now let's explain to the reader what faith means. Because we can't throw something away we don't understand what it is. It's kind of like getting a lottery ticket and you have a winning ticket, but you threw it away because you didn't know it was going to win. You know, our faith, someone might throw it away just because you say, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. You say, no, no, no. What is faith then? Do we know what it is? What is faith? Verse 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You say, but I, I, I can't see what's going to happen in the future. I can't see the path forward. It's kind of like going down that stairway that uh, you have an automatic light on that's supposed to turn on when it has a motion sensor. And as you head down the stairs, it's supposed to turn on. 
but for some reason it's not turning on until you get to the second step and you can't see it, and then it comes on, you're stepping out by faith. You're believing there's actually somewhere to go there. You don't, can't see it, but it's there. Faith is about the unseen, the unknowable. We're not living by faith if we're always acting upon what we know and what we see. Now, if we're acting upon our knowledge of God, our knowledge of Christ, our knowledge of the Word, our knowledge that He cares for us, our, our knowledge that He is supreme in our lives, our knowledge that He will never lead us where He cannot keep us, that knowledge we can go with, but we could still end up with a lot that we don't know. Dennis Luther heading off for training for further education to prepare him for Bible translation somewhere in the world. Doesn't know what that's going to look like. Doesn't know how he's going to be able to pay for everything in all that training. Doesn't know uh, how God is going to care for his parents while he's gone. Doesn't know where he's going to end up on the mission field. Doesn't know what language he has to learn. But he's got to step out by faith and go. Ben Candy. Going off to Germany, or excuse me, he went to Germany, decided to go to Brazil. And if you talk to him about how that all came about, that was a huge surprise to him. And the challenges? There's a little insect down there or some sort of little critter that he's allergic to. And you say, boy, that's enough to make me not go. But he's not going to be timid. In spite of what he may face with that, he's going to go. Because he trusts that that's where God wants him, and therefore he's going to go trusting that God will care for him and provide for him. The Seahusans, hearing about that storm in Fiji that Pastor Steve mentioned in his prayer, they might be wondering, what are we doing? Going as a family to Fiji to serve the Lord among a people that have been hit by one of the largest typhoons or cyclones to hit the islands in known history. Is that really where God is taking us? Is God able to take care of us? It's so far away. Going. Going. Learning to trust God. So how are we doing in all that? You say, well, the challenge I face isn't as glorious as missionary service in Fiji. Our, our, my challenge isn't in facing the jungles of southern Brazil. My challenge isn't... Uh, facing uh, the difficulties that Shannon Hurley has in Uganda. My, those things I can see, I understand. I understand how God leads people like that. I understand that people, God leads people like Dennis Luther to go do Bible translation. I'm facing more mundane things here at home, more challenges here of, of, of things I have difficulty seeing. How do I lead my home for Christ? How, how do I make certain my children are raised properly? How do I get things fixed in my marriage? I've got those challenges. I've got those pains. We've got a family in our church who had a little nephew fall off of a three-story building in Central America. The anguish, the pain of the family in hearing that news. We have women in our church suffering from uh, MS. We have people in our church suffering from cancer. We have people who are suffering in many ways. They're facing unknown things, unknown challenges, things that they never dreamt they'd face in their lives. And they don't know how they're going to see their way through to the end of it. They, know what's, they don't know what's coming tomorrow. 
That's the kind of situation which God says, I want you to live by faith. And faith is having assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. And it goes on to say, for by it the people of old, the ancient people, the ancient believers, received this commendation, and by faith we. Do you ever wonder why it says the people of old, then it turns to we? Because it's the same challenge to our faith. Where does our faith begin today? Spiritually and biblically, it begins with what do you believe about God's creating the heavens and the earth? You see, the scientist and the believer, the Christian believer, are in the same boat here. Why? Because neither one of us were here at creation. No one's seen it. No one was there. No one has witnessed but God himself. And so it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe or even if you don't believe in a God at all, you're really operating on faith of some sort to believe how the world began. That's unseen. That's unknown. And God says, that's your test, believer, today. That's how your faith must begin. Will you believe God for that? Will you trust Him? And by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice, the first sacrifice in the history of humankind. He offered it by faith. Cain failed to offer his by faith, and his sacrifice was rejected. We're told that very clearly here in this context. A better sacrifice. Then we have Enoch. And Enoch pleased God. And he was taken to be with God at the age of 350. Suddenly he was not. He was gone. It was like a rapture, a taking away. God took him into heaven to be with him. And there we have a pointing to the reality beyond this world and beyond this life. That God exists, that God is, and he has a place for his people. And he took Enoch there because Enoch walked, he lived by faith. So how do I live by faith that way? You may be a believer here and say, well, I believe that in the rapture of the church, that Jesus Christ is going to return and take the church away from here. And you say, it's, I don't know when, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I believe it. But are we walking by faith now, pleasing God, that we might experience that? And then we have Noah. By faith, he feared God. He had a reverent fear in which he constructed the ark for a great flood that he could not see. He did not know for certain it was coming except God said so. He did not know why he had to build an ark that was so huge, but God said so. He did not know that he'd have to preach and teach and build for 120 years. But it's how God showed him how to care for his family. And God cared for him. He learned to live by faith. So that brings us now to Abraham. Who in the world is Abraham? There are 12 verses in Hebrews 11 about Abraham more than any other individual in this roll call of people who walked and lived by faith. More time is spent on him than any other. He is the one mentioned most often in the New Testament as the example of faith and that we are to be children of Abraham. We are to live like he lived. 
So maybe we ought to take a look at his life to see what in the world God put him through to make him a man of faith, a man who had walked by faith, a man whose history and commendation would be recorded here in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. We're going from Hebrews 11 to Genesis 11. Because in Genesis 11, we see the beginning of the history of Abraham. And we're not going to go through it in great detail. We're going to kind of skim through it here. But we need to understand who this Abraham is. And so in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, we find these words. Now, these are the generations of. That's the sixth time in the book of Genesis we have those words. Back in the same chapter, in verse 10, we had these are the generations of Shem. Now we have these are the generations of Terah. It's how the book of Genesis is divided up by these genealogies, by these family histories. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. There's our man. He was named Abram. Later, God changed his name to Abraham. And we see immediately that Abram had two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot, and Lot was the nephew then of Abraham. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now that sounds like a little bit of a... Uh, a dark beginning, doesn't it, the story of Abraham. His wife is barren. She turns out to be an amazing woman. And it is an interesting thing to follow their journey in life. And they begin their marriage with some degree of difficulty, a challenge. She's barren. They can't have children. And this is going to last for decades. Not months, not just years, but decades. Think of the hopes dashed. Think of the sorrow and grief. Think of the pain they faced together as husband and wife, knowing that they perhaps would not have any child of their own. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, that's kind of an inauspicious beginning. We're not even told why they were going to Canaan. We're not told why Terah made the decision. We are told something very special about Terah, though. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we're told that Terah... And his ancestors were all idol worshipers, not believers in God. So Abram is following his father to Haran, leaving Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world at that time. It was a place where those who were scientists, those who were astrologers, those who were educators, those who were brilliant in all the arts and sciences and history and all knowledge lived and dwelt. But they were worshipers of idols, of wood, of stone, and of metal. Primarily, the moon god is the one they worshiped. 
and Terah decides to leave Ur the Chaldeans. And it appears, as we see later in the story, he was a very wealthy man. He had many slaves, many servants. He owned herds and flocks. He had silver and gold and property. And they probably lived very, very comfortably in Ur of the Chaldeans. But they up and move. Shortly, perhaps after Abram and Sarah are married. We don't know exactly when. And when they get to Haran, on their way to Canaan, Terah dies. Notice the next verse, the last verse of chapter 11. The days of Terah were 206 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, note the 206 years. Because as Abram stood beside the lifeless body of his father, Terah, he probably had this realization. I will not live so long. Why? Because he knows the stories of his ancestors, all the family line, how that before the flood they lived up to almost a thousand years of age. But after the flood of Noah's day, their ages began to decrease gradually. Soon everyone was dying in their 400s. Soon now they're in their 200s. And Abram looking at that realizes my life's not going to be as long as my father's. And he was right. It would not be as long as his father's. He would die 31 years younger. There are many uncertainties he's facing. He doesn't know how long his life is. He doesn't know perhaps what's going on with going to Canaan. He's been uprooted already. He has a wife who is barren and can't have children. What in the world is he going to do? And somehow, some way, it appears from putting all the story together that somewhere about that time, Abram came to God by faith. And God spoke with him. And Abram believed what God said and began to live by faith. And it's hard for us to construct all the things that he was told by God and all the things he believed, but little by little as we go through his life here, we're going to find out what it involved. But in chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, we see the first of it. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. At this point, he doesn't even know where it's going to be. He knew his father was going to take them all into Canaan. They'd never been there. They didn't know what it was. And now God is saying, just trust me. I want you to go where I want you to go. And I want you to leave your father's house, and I want you to step out and go where I tell you to go. And I will make of you a great nation <laughs> with a barren wife. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Whoa, wait a minute. That is huge. But that's the promises of God to this man, Abraham. And he's going to believe them. And you know, as I look at him, I, I, I look at his entire life here and, and, and look at the history of his background. And as I look at that and, and try to put myself in his sandals, there in Haran, ready to leave. First of all, he's leaving behind a father that he's buried. 
His father is the 10th generation since Noah. As I thought about that and tried to contemplate that in my own mind, I went back through my own family history. I have a granddaughter that this past couple of weeks has been sending me a question. It's saying, Grandpa, I have an assignment in school. Where's our family from? Who is in our family line? Are there any Native Americans in our family line? If so, who and what tribes are they from? And all these questions coming from our granddaughter. And so I start doing the research. I start putting together, start pulling together my files of family genealogies and all the information, contacting uh, aunts and, and contacting cousins and, and different people to, to get additional information for her. And it suddenly dawns on me. Abraham is the 11th or 12th generation since Noah, since the flood. And I am the 11th generation since my ancestors came to America. They came here from Germany in the early 1700s and settled in Maryland and Pennsylvania. They were weavers by trade. I look back at that line of history, and, and I found out that they came from Germany because they were being persecuted for their faith. They were actually Huguenots. I don't know if they came out of France into Germany. I don't know why. I don't know how they became Huguenots. I don't know anything except the Huguenots were greatly persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church in those days, and that many Huguenots fled, and many of them fled to Holland, and my ancestors fled to Holland, and from Holland they fled to Scotland, and from Scotland they fled to America to find a place of religious freedom and to worship God without persecution, without harassment, without government restrictions. They came here. 11 generations ago, and I thought, that's the way Abraham felt. He was thinking of his family line, nor the Chaldees, and before that, all the way to Noah, and saying, it's been 11 generations, and now I'm the one who's being asked to step out and go. Leave that family behind and go, I don't know where, to do I don't know what, but God says go. What would you do? in that situation. And there's another factor here. Look at verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. <laughs> I turned 70 this year, so I'm getting close. And I don't know if I'm ready to take a journey like Abram was going to take. Suddenly move, give up everything you have, and, and go not knowing where you're going, wondering if your knees will last long enough to walk all the miles to get there or to have to ride a donkey, which can be quite contrary. And I've ridden donkeys before. I've been thrown by donkeys. And it hurt when I was 20. It hurt when I was 30. It hurt when I was 40. I don't know what it would feel like at 70. But I know it would hurt to get thrown by one of those animals. And here he is at 75, barren wife, going only on the promise of God, only upon the Word of God, and he's going to go and he's going to leave and trust God for everything. Could you and I do that? Could we give up our, the comfort that we have to go somewhere we don't know, to do what we don't know? And there's more to the story, and we'll have to go through it quickly. They went, they got to Canaan. 
And there, God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, I'm giving all of this land to your successors, to your descendants. But before I give it to them, they're going to spend 400 years in Egypt as slaves. Well, that rules out Abraham. Remember, he's 75 years old. Remember, he's going to live less than his father. And so there's no way he's going to be around at the end of 400 years of his descendants being in Egypt. So what does that mean? That means if that's when God gives the land, he doesn't even get the land he's going to be promised to inherit. Now, how would that be? If you were to leave home with a promise of having a home elsewhere to get there to find out it doesn't belong to you and won't belong to you and that it will only belong to your heirs 400 years later, would you feel cheated? Would you feel like, wow, I did all this for nothing? Abram said, I'm going because God said so. We're going to read more about that because that story isn't over either. Remember, his wife was barren. So we come down to 11 years later in Canaan. And Sarah comes to her husband and says, I'm barren. I'm not going to have a child. We're getting old, Abram. Have you noticed? Did you look in the mirror? You're an old man and I'm an old lady. She's 10 years his younger. So... He's 86, actually be 85 at the time this was going on, this conversation, and she is 75, and she's saying, you better take Hagar, my handmaiden, so that you can have an heir, and after all, God said you'd, have, uh, you'd be a great nation, so maybe this is how it's going to happen, Abraham. It's not going to happen with me. Her faith was tried, and she began to give up, to throw away her faith, to be timid, to give up. It was too much. She couldn't take it anymore. That's not the whole story because in the meantime, part of the story we left out is they had a famine in the land. They left the land, sought refuge elsewhere, and Abram lied about her and said, she's just my sister, put her in danger. So Abraham was also struggling with walking by faith. You see, just because we begin walking by faith, as Abraham did in leaving or the Chaldees, doesn't mean that we're every day of our lives going to continue to walk as we ought to walk. We're going to face challenges. We're going to face disappointments. And there's going to be challenges to our faith. There can be times when we'll throw away our faith, when we'll lay it aside, or when we just give up and are timid and fearful and can't hang on any longer. Abram knew what that was like. Sarah knew what that was like. They had their challenges. They were like us. They weren't perfect. At the age of 86 then, Hagar gives birth to a son. Abram's first son is Ishmael. Not going to be the one that God promised as an heir. As a matter of fact, later when we get to Genesis chapter 17, God renews his covenant with Abraham saying, Abraham, do you remember what I promised you? In chapter 12 and chapter 15, we read about those promises. Abraham, do you remember those things? I'm telling you, I will fulfill my promises, Abraham. You and Sarah have tried to fulfill them yourself in your own way, and you're making a mess of it. Abraham, I will give you and Sarah a son. How old is Abraham then? 
99 years old. His wife is 89. And God says, I promise you, you will have a son, a second son, but it'll be a son by Sarah, the barren wife. Shortly after that, in chapter 18, three visitors show up at Abraham's tent. One of them is the son of God himself. The other two are angels. And what happens then? Sarah hears the messenger of the Lord say, Sarah will have a child about a year from now. And she laughs. And so the name of their son is going to be Isaac, which means laughter. She found it hard to believe. How will a 90-year-old woman bear a son to a 99-year-old man? We have enough challenges. What that, what's that going to look like? And about that time, God reveals that He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah is where His nephew Lot had chosen to live because it was so luscious, green valley down in there. And He says, I'll take that area. And so Abram stayed up in the hillsides, and God says, I'm going down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham knows what's in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows that it's a community of homosexuals. He knows that it's a community of wicked sinners, not just homosexuals, murderers, thieves, liars, a whole bunch of people down there. They're nothing but wicked, rotten sinners, just like we are. And what does Abraham do? He begs for God's mercy on people he doesn't know other than his nephew and his family on a people that he has nothing in common with because of their lifestyle, and he begs God for mercy. He doesn't say, go ahead, God, destroy them. They deserve it. He says, oh, Lord, can't you spare them? If you could find just so many righteous people in that city, won't you spare them? And he argues with God about it. What a man a man of faith who will wrestle with God for the lives of those with whom he disagrees and has nothing in common with as far as his life. Those who have no faith, those who have no righteousness, regardless of the sin involved, he argues for them. He intercedes for them before God. What a man. What an example. He lives through the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He learns that Lot has escaped, but Lot's wife is dead. And he learns that Lot has fathered children with his own daughters. Continued story of pain and anguish in a dysfunctional family. You say, well, at least my family isn't that dysfunctional. Hey, if, if he can face these things and still trust God, what's wrong with us? You say, but you don't know my children. Well, look at Isaac and Ishmael. They couldn't get along. There's dysfunctional family right there. Two brothers, same household. Hagar and Sarah can't get along. He ends up sending Hagar off into the wilderness with her son. You look at his grandchildren. Look at Jacob and Esau. Tell me about the dysfunctionality there. For Isaac loves Esau, 
and Rebekah sides with Jacob. That's his son and his daughter-in-law who are mismanaging their parenting of their children. And it's his two grandsons that are constantly bickering with one another and can't get along. And one cheats the other out of his birthright. And he ends up having to flee for safety to the old family ties back in Haran. Don't tell me that Abraham, as a righteous man, is rewarded by having a family that is perfect. No, he's a righteous man who walks by faith because as he looks at his own family, that's not where his hope can be. And he's willing to trust God, and he's willing to keep on plugging, plugging along, getting in there and doing what God wants him to do in spite of all he faces. At the age of 100, he has his son Isaac, the son of promise. Sarah is 90 years old. We read about that in Genesis 21, verse 8. At about the age of 114, God tells him to take that promised son, that son he had waited for, for 30 years. And he has a son now. And God is saying, take him to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. God is testing him. He's testing him to find out if he has grown in his faith. If he's learned to trust God with his family. He's failed so many times. He's failed to trust God for, for many times. And God's testing him to see if this is finally it. And we're told in Hebrews 11 that he trusts God because he believes God can raise Isaac from the dead. But God stops him and provides the lamb of sacrifice as a picture of what God will provide as a lamb of sacrifice for the sins of the world. And we're we're going to see that in that, Abraham could see what was coming with Messiah. And you say, well, how in the world can you say that? That's not said there in Genesis chapter 22. It's said by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. When did he see it? Somewhere along the line, God gave him that revelation. Perhaps that revelation was right there on Mount Moriah. For he was saying to him, Abraham, I have a lamb that will be provided. And that lamb is yet to be given, but it will be my lamb, and I will give it, and I will provide it. Not you. And through that lamb of God will come blessing upon all the families of the earth. Just as John the baptizer said when he pointed at Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said, Abraham knew of me. Abraham knew of the Messiah. He knew what was coming. He knew what would happen. He believed in it. He trusted in it. At the age of 137, his wife Sarah dies. And Abraham is still a wanderer living in tents and doesn't own one foot of land. He has to purchase land from the Canaanite people in order for him to bury his wife, Sarah. You say, how can that be? Turn with me to Acts chapter 7, if you would, please. Acts chapter 7. Start at the second verse of Acts chapter 7. It's a speech of Stephen. Just before he is stoned, 
and killed for his faith. Stephen says this in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him, he, God gave Abraham no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And that's before Isaac was born. Are you willing to go somewhere where you have nothing? Are you willing to leave everything you have and go out to follow God to do what you don't know what he's going to give to you or how, what you're going to experience? And to never have a home again? Never own a piece of land again? Never have your own property again? Other than what you can carry? That was Abraham. And note this. Because his ancestors were idol worshipers, he had no godly advisors. No godly examples to look to. Because he lived before the writings of the scriptures, he had no scriptures, he had no Bible, he had no prophets to speak to him and give him instruction. He depended solely upon God and what God told him. And he lived by it and walked by it and gave up everything for it. Within two or three years after the death of his wife Sarah, at that time, Abram was 137 when she died. She was 127. He remarried, perhaps because of his great loneliness, having lost the love of his life. You say, when is this story going to end? This man's gone through so much. And we've only spoken about part of it. We haven't looked at every detail of his life. And now his wife, Sarah, whom he loves so deeply and dearly, is gone. This woman who is an example for godly women of all ages, according to Peter. This woman who is beautiful, that kings would like to have her in their harems, in their households. This woman who, in patience, bore with a husband who couldn't learn to trust God with his wife and his family and with his own safety that he had to lie about her to try to save himself, and she remained with him, and she endured all that. She had her own faults. We already saw that with Hagar. Yes, they endured through a marriage that was not perfect. Yes, they endured through trials that are beyond some of our comprehension. And their love for each other at the end, after over 60 years at least of marriage, must have broken Abraham's heart. And in his loneliness, he married again, married Keturah, who was then probably about 139 or 140 years of age. 
And the next thing we know is he's gone. He died at the age of 175. His journey is over. His pilgrimage is finished. But he leaves behind a godly example. We're told by James in James chapter 2, verse 23, that he was called a friend of God. Why a friend of God? Just as Jesus said in John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Abraham was a friend of God because he obeyed God. He did what God said. What did God promise to Abraham? He promised him a land, but a land he would never possess. That would try us. He was a foreigner. He lived as an alien. He lived as an outcast. He lived as a tent-dwelling Bedouin all the days of his life, from the time he left Haran to the time he died. He could not call this land his own because it did not belong to him yet. But we're told in the text in Hebrews that his vision was beyond this. Turn back to the book of Hebrews now and let's finish up here. Hebrews chapter 11, remember, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. God promised. How many promises has God given that you have not seen fulfilled yet? As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. But, it says here in verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, designer and builder is God. Notice that we're already told that here in the context. And look down in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. In case we don't understand what's talking about. A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And then look at chapter 12, verse 22. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's our city as well, we're told there. It's where Jesus is, we're told there. In verse uh, 24, it says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And then look at chapter 13, verse 14. You see, this is a theme through the end of this book. It's about faith, and it's about faith in what? It's about faith in heaven. It's about faith in what we look forward to outside this world. For here, we, as New Testament believers, have no lasting city, but we seek the cities to come. Don't feel at home here. You're not home. My dear wife has followed me all over the world. Before that, before we were married, her father was in the military, and after that, he was a General Motors insurance adjuster, moved from town to town, from city to city, from state to state. Before we were married, she had moved 19 times. Since we've been married, she's moved another 19 times. And when I told her I was retiring from teaching the seminary and we'd be 
Lord willing, moving back home to Colorado, she says, oh, my. First time in my life I've been in one place, set down roots. Are you sure? <laughs> She's with her mother right now in Modesto caring for her, final stage kidney disease. She's only had a few weeks at home over the past six months. And we just came home. We're allowed to come home for three weeks here recently and come into our own home here. And, and she walked in and she says, who in the world lives here? <laughs> she didn't feel at home anymore. It didn't feel like home. She'd been gone so long. She didn't know, what was I doing before we left? And where do I pick up? And what do I do? And I've only got three weeks here. And you're off to another conference in Montana, and then you've got a conference in Santa Clarita, and then you're preaching for Adam, and, and then after that, you've, you've got TMAI, you've got uh, a, uh, a conference, Shepherd's Conference you speak at, and then in April, you're going to take off again. You're going to go and teach in Russia. You're going to teach in Ukraine. You're going to teach in Germany. She said, uh, she said, I don't know if I have a home anymore. And so, as we look at it, you know, you say, well, boy, that sounds sad. No, it isn't. Listen, we haven't even begun to face what Abraham faced. We still have a house. In fact, we almost have two of them because Barb's mother's up there and we spend time with her and live with her there. When we're there, that's where she wants to be cared for. So, how can we be said to give up everything? We got far more than Abraham. We got more than one square foot of place to call home in two different locations. And it's not packing up a tent every time we go anywhere. No, it's nothing compared to what Abraham went through. We have to be willing to give up everything for Christ if called upon. To live for Him and Him alone. So what is faith then in conclusion? Faith is, for Abraham, it's very simple. Right there in 11.8, by faith, Abraham obeyed. It's obedience. Faith is obedience. True faith always leads to decisive action. James said, faith without works is dead. Why? Because the true faith that really saves really works. There's evidence of that faith. And we must live by that. We must be willing to step out to obey God even if we don't know what's coming, even if we can't see where He's taking us, even where, when we don't know what's going to happen. And to stay faithful and to stay without timidity in the midst of circumstances in a dysfunctional family, in circumstances where we don't know what's coming tomorrow, with all the pain, all the sorrow, all the anguish, all the struggles, Everything we can go through, the losses and the challenges of living in a fallen world that we will hang on and not hang up, that will not throw away our faith, will not give up, will live for Christ. You see, faith is claiming God's promise. And God's promise is a foundation for our life in this present world. And that promise is primarily a promise of the future in heaven. And in the meantime, we wait like Abraham waited. Look how long he waited for a son. Look how long he waited for an inheritance of land and never got it. Look how long he waited to even see heaven 
He had to live to the age of 175 before he's released from this veil of tears. Don't seek to get out of this world by suicide. Don't seek to destroy your life. Don't seek to destroy your family. Don't seek to do those things which will only bring more dysfunctionality and pain and agony. Trust God. Hang on to your faith. Look and be willing to wait and endure because through that enduring and enduring pain and sorrow and difficulty and challenges, God is preparing you for even a greater appreciation of that place, that home beyond this world where all the things of this world are left behind. And just like Abraham, we're imperfect and we will fail and we'll make wrong decisions along the way. But if we are willing to obey God, we'll be called God's friend. And we will learn the lesson somewhere along the way. Yes, ladies, your husband may take until he's 114 years old to learn the lesson Abraham learned at 114. Sarah put up with him. You can put up with your husband. And husbands, you say, that wife of mine, you don't understand. Well, hey, wait a minute. Look at Sarah. Why did God have to speak to Abraham so strongly in Genesis 17? Because he listened to his wife Sarah in Genesis chapter 16. Almost sounds like Adam and Eve all over again. Because she was wavering in her faith and got him to waver in his faith. But God doesn't hold her accountable for that. He holds Abraham accountable for it. Don't blame your wife for giving in to even her lack of faith. Blame yourself. You're the one at fault. You're the one that has to have faith. Learn the lesson of Abraham, a man of faith, listed in the roll call of faith. He was not perfect. He lived with challenges and difficulties, and he didn't give up. He didn't hang up. He waited. He waited for God, and because of that, God says, if you want faith, you need the faith of Abraham, and you are the children of Abraham. It is no ordinary trial of our faith to give up what we have in order to seek what is far off and unknowable. He looked for a heavenly city, and that's where he went. So lastly, what promises can we claim? 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, beloved, what promises? Chapter 6, it says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Those are the promises that are talked about there. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter 1.4 says, We are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 1 John 2.25, we're told that our promise is eternal life. James 1.12 says, Our promise is the crown of life promised to those who love God and await His appearing. James 2.5 says, Our promise, our inheritance is that of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Ephesians 6.2 says, The first commandment with the promise, the commandment is honoring father and mother, regardless of the difficulties and the challenges. And what's the promise? a long life on a fallen earth. You say, what kind of promise is that? It gives you time to learn 
why you should honor father and mother. And to really learn, you have to become a parent. And to become a parent, you've got to live longer. So when you disobey your parents, that's not when God just yanks you out of the world. He says, no, you've got a lesson to learn. And you're going to learn it the hard way. You're going to learn it by being a parent yourself. And your honor and respect for your parents will grow through that. That's what God wants of us. Our honor of our Heavenly Father, our respect for our Heavenly Father grows as we experience life's difficulties here on earth and understand what our Savior gave up to come and live here in this rotten world to save us. And we grow in our love and desire to see our Savior face to face in heaven. So in conclusion, how do we fill in the blank? By faith I can what? What do we learn here? By faith I can obey God. Which means obey His Word, just like Abraham did. By faith, I can go where God wants me to go. Where does God want you? The Wongs are taking off uh, in April for China again. Ben Tandy's taking off for Brazil as soon as he can get support. The Seahusens are taking off for Fiji as soon as they can get support. Dennis is taking off for Missouri as soon as he can. Get his application completed and head off and start his training for Bible translation work. Where does God want you to go? What does God want you to do? Tim Guess is here this morning. He's hoping to go off again back to Romania. Where is God leading you? And it may not be in a, a place like that. It may not be as a missionary. But God wants you to be faithful where you are and in what you're doing. What are you doing in Placerita? What have you stepped out by faith to do here? that you would never have pictured yourself to do? What are you doing about your neighbors and witnessing to them? How are you facing the challenges that you're facing? How are you facing the sorrows, the griefs, and the pains and disappointments you came in here with this morning that are breaking your heart? Are you willing to just cast yourself upon Christ and trust Him? And that He is the one who can get you through this and that He is the one you must trust? So I can also, by faith, I can believe and accept God's promises. I know I'm not a citizen here, so being an alien here, I'm going to face some challenges. By faith, I can live in temporary lodging. <laughs> Chapter 11, verse 38, look at the description of these who live by faith in the Old Testament. They were wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Are any of you living in caves yet? Now we're pretty comfortable, aren't we? But what if it ever came to that? Would you be willing to accept that? That's what is here. Read this list. Read this chapter, and we'll look at it and say, well, you know what? I thought I had it pretty bad, but I've got it pretty good. And I only pray that God will allow me to live by faith the way those people did in the circumstances they had to live in and live with. And lastly, by faith, I can look forward to the city of God. By faith, I can look forward to the city of God. What does it look like to walk by faith? To live like Abraham. Is it a life that is always perfect? No. Are all the challenges removed? No. Is all the pain and sorrow gone? No. Are the storms of life calm? No.
but Jesus walks through them with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Hang on. Wait with patience. Endure. Persevere. And allow Christ to work in your life and grow through it. The cost of living by faith is everything we are and everything we have. None of us have yet given all of that. May we grow in that so that like Abraham, when we approach the end of our lives, we have learned something along the way and learned to trust God more and understand that He never leads us where He cannot keep us. He never takes away from us without providing for us. Trust Him today. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the life of Abraham. What a man. There's so much more we could say about him. There's so much in the Bible written about him. It would take weeks or months to work through everything. So we've just taken a very brief look. But we've begun to understand why the New Testament begins with the words, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. Oh, Lord, help us to be like our Savior. Help us to be willing to not have a place to live. I, our Savior told us that the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then he turned to his disciples and said, take up your cross and follow me. Help us to follow our Savior today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.